Hello and welcome to Chinwag Reloaded. Yes, um, I'm starting all over again. And uh, you have to have like when you do uh, when you start something that you've done before, which is different, but it's kind of the same as you've done before. You have to give it a new name, like two dot zero or reloaded or recharged or whatever. But it's still me and basically somebody on the other end of the line doing Skype and recording the thing. It ain't that flash. So uh, with me today, uh, first time, I think if I remember rightly, because I've done so many of these, you lose track. First time on the wag. Maybe that should be the new name, the wag, I don't know, um, is a fella who has been incredibly useful to me uh, over the last couple of years, um, especially around the world of SRM, stuff like that. I, I had contacts at NetApp in the UK and in the US that were extremely useful when it came to, to writing those books on, on SRM. Um, but uh, if you're watching the podcast, you can see his smiling face. He's got especially spruced up and uh, smartened up just for this podcast. Um, Nick, can you introduce yourself to everybody listening in and watching? Sure, Mike. Thanks for having me today. Um, it's it's good to finally do a chinwag. Um, I, I'm Nick Howell. I've uh, been at NetApp now for about four years. Uh, I've been a big member of the community for uh, years before that. Uh, I've been doing virtualization since about 2007 and a uh, V-Expert for about the past five years. Um, run everything over, basically my central hub is datacenterdude.com and I've been blogging over there for about three or four years now and we have a podcast at NetApp for the last couple of years called the NetApp Communities Podcast, a uh, weekly episodic typical kind of podcast show talking about NetApp and integrations across the board, not only VMware but uh, everything really. A, a lot of it focuses on storage and, and cloud. Um, but we do tend to talk quite a bit about VMware. Sure. I forget now when we first met. I remember remember going to RTP and meeting the team uh, over in North Carolina, but I think maybe we've met before that and certainly spoken spoken on, through the format of Twitter or you know through yeah. forums and things like that for a while. So uh, we're going to focus on, on NetApp because obviously that's an area that you know Nick is, is focused on, but you know there are some topics that are a bit wider than that as well so uh as ever on these things there's like a little bit of email chit chat that goes back but none of this stuff is really scripted and it shows yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we basically have a bulleted list because a lot of the people i want to have on the show are extremely busy like nick is and therefore endless kind of scripting and endless emails that go to the nth degree about what you're going to do isn't what's needed you just need a bulleted list and off you go so the first topic is all about Vvols and NetApp. Um, I know that uh, NetApp had a lab all about uh, Vvols at uh, this year's VM World. In fact, I was one of the people who got involved in testing it, and it wasn't deliberate. It was I, I couldn't find my own lab to test, <laughs> so I thought, well, I might as well do some lab. And I searched, and I saw NetApp there, and I saw Vvols, and I thought, well, let's let's go in and do this. So. Um, and it's kind of nice when you've spent a lot of time with the lab to have somebody you know sort of looking at it. So there was a couple of people who I knew were looking at my lab going, why doesn't this work? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's because X, Y, and Z. But um, there will be some people who have been living under a stone who might not know what VVOLS is or why it's significant. So it would probably be worthwhile if you could give us your, yeah. your view on that. And then I guess the other thing is, is that each of our vendors are going to, because the systems are different, you know, uh, right. are going to implement it and, and approach those APIs in in slightly different ways that make it nuanced to do towards their storage. So 
I'll shut yeah. up and, <laughs> and let my guests get a word in for once. Go for it, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so the short version is, before we go into the extreme details, is that what people need to know about VVOLs is they... Uh, there were a lot of problems in early virtualization because everything was RDMs. RDMs mm. were performant and they were uh, easy in a sense, but they were very difficult, if not impossible, to really manage. And they didn't open up a lot of the, the things that we have today or take advantage of the things we have today as far as uh, uh, performance monitoring and all those sorts of things. They were literally just a dumb bucket of storage that you mounted to an ESX host uh, and do that. What if we took those same concept, concepts, gave you the ability to manage it both from the storage side and the vCenter side, and had that awareness, and still had the same kind of performance and granularity that RDMs brought to the table? That's VVOLs. That's, that's, in a nutshell, what it really comes down to, without getting down into the minutia of, of all of the things that go on. And uh, some brief history on it. It's liter- I started at NetApp early in 2011, and it was one of the first things that we... One of the first discussions that I uh, that I really got involved with is I heard about what's this virtual volumes thing that we keep hearing about. What happened was is uh, NetApp came. I'm sorry, VMware came to three of its big storage partners at the time. NetApp, uh, I believe it was HDS and Dell, uh, but uh, Equalogic. I'm sorry, before they were Dell. Right. And um, NetApp for NFS, HDS for Fiber Channel, and uh, Equalogic for iSCSI. And said, we want to change the way we do storage. Nobody really liked RDMs that much for certain for reasons that we're all familiar with. Uh, VMFS is cool, but the, the clustered over, uh, file system has overhead involved with it, going through an additional layer. How do we get directly to the storage? So VVOLs became this momentum to move forward with getting VMDK-level granularity directly to the virtual machines and giving the virtual machines access to all of the performance on the storage controllers without having to go through an additional layer of uh, not complexity, but it's it's one more hop you have to go through to get to the storage when you right. go through the hypervisor. Okay. So, I mean, like, for me, I'm interested in... I am interested in the detail of how it all works. When you use RDMs, you're essentially presenting a NNA address to the ESX host, and it's like a... The, the RDM is just basically a text file. It's a pointer to the RDM that tells it where to find that with not enough specific information such that if the VM gets moved or if it ends up being backed by a different HBA, that suddenly there'll be a problem. The odd thing about RDMs is that people used to look at that VMDK and say, God, is is the VMDK pointer really 100 gig in size? And you say, no, it's, it's actually a couple of K. It's the LUN that's a couple of gig in size. So there was always that kind of jive between, is, am I seeing a disk here or am I seeing uh, a LUN or a, a volume on the array? So, I mean, that's how the old system used to work. Is it a kind of similar experience, but a different technology going on underneath the, the can of it? Kind of. I mean, a LUN is still a LUN. And, and it, a lot of people don't know, funny you were just saying it, you can literally VI into a VMDK file and edit it. It's just a descriptor of the, the, what it's wrapping itself around, yeah. right? <clears throat> VVOLs are LUNs at the end of the day, or you know, NFS exports. The difference is, is that you don't have to care so much about the protocol anymore. And, and I think this goes into a bigger discussion around getting VM admins back to managing 
virtual infrastructure in and VMs specifically and applications and not having to just by nature of being a virtualization admin be a some sort of level of storage expert. Mm -hmm. I, I think that happened naturally over the past five years where if you wanted to do VMware, there was a certain level of storage that you had to know and understand and, and bring that expertise in house in order to do things like vMotion, understanding VM networking and all of those sorts of things required that understanding. There's certain things going on right now that are around policy-based management. Cisco's doing a lot with ACI. Uh, NetApp's doing a lot around policy-based management with the VASA provider. There's other people out there doing uh, uh, interactions with VASA. So we're seeing this growth of, of policy-based management as a whole and getting using those policies to manage things on a more granular level. And not so much just intelligent placement, but um, being able to move things around and report on compliance um, whether or not they're adhering to those policies that are assigned to them. Um, one of the things Vasa gives us the ability to do as a little bit of a segue here is advertise storage features up into vCenter. Because typically, we didn't know. It was just a dumb data store backed by Fiber Channel or, or NFS. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, that was the extent of what we knew about what was behind the data store. Uh -huh. uh, like you said, we knew NAADs, we knew NFS export path, but that's really about it. Now, what if we can take all of the features that are native to a NetApp storage controller, snap mirror, disk type, um, deduplication, compression, quality of service. If we can advertise those as services that are available into vCenter, now we can package those into bundles or policies uh, and begin to allow admins to just, instead of having to pick a specific data store and have to know what that data store is, now they just pick a gold, silver, bronze, platinum, policy and that makes all the decisions for them they just have to say how big they want it what do they want to name it and um and everything else is taken care of for them it's interesting that you mentioned those attributes because i think when i first started looking at vasa both on uh, the emc arrays netup arrays and ecological arrays the the amount of information coming back to me wasn't really a whole lot of use and that isn't a criticism of the storage vendors it's a little bit of a criticism of us in a way that the the attributes that could be reported to Vasa were, you know, RAID levels and, you know, whether it was replicated or not and little else, to be honest with you. And it, when I looked at it, I thought, this is handy. And this is before I joined VMware, incidentally. This is handy, but it's not telling me enough to make it, like, really useful. Whereas when you mention the other attributes, like DD compression, SLAs, then it becomes more interesting the more attributes you have. One question I had though is, um, and you'll have to forgive me because it's probably mm, knocking on to two years since I actually looked at uh, a version of ONTAP that was remotely current. Because my my ONTAP boxes, my, uh, my, my boxes, I basically moved them on because I moved out of a colo. And I think we had this discussion as well. I, my particular controllers were that old, <laughs> they wouldn't take the latest version of, of ONTAP. Right. So it's like, mm, well, it, are they that much use to me? But I, I guess you still got System Commander as the main UI for doing management. Is that right? System, uh, system Manager. System yeah. Manager, sorry. Yeah. And you've got things like FlexVol and different volume types. Is VVol just seen as another type of volume that you create? Or is it contained inside a FlexVol? How, how is that sort of done? It's it's contained inside a FlexVol. So it's it's several layers of kind of... And the purpose of this is not to host VVOLs. Nothing's really changing when it comes on the NetApp side when it comes to VVOLs 
fundamentally, right? Mm. It, we still depend on flex vols or LUNs if you're doing uh, block-based V-vols. But at the end of the day, we're using flex vols as these slinky type of buckets that you can grow, shrink, change policies, etc., in order to do placement of where your VVOL da uh, data, where your VVOLs are going to live, whether those are LUNs or exports of volumes. So the way that we're treating it is that you have the container uh, inside of vCenter, and inside of that container, you're going to have one plus n flex vols that will each individually have their own. Uh, profile attached to them that will define all of those storage capabilities that I just that we were just using as examples. So uh, when I when I run through the process of creating a VM, I say it's that flexible, or maybe I don't even see that far. I, I select a policy, and it will dynamically create a VVOL on the storage for me and map it back to the VM, or is it I create the VVOL up front and select one from that bucket? How, what's the order of workflow? There's one more layer in between, and that's the VM storage policies that are native to vCenter, right? right? One of the cool things that uh, VMware did was they made that part extensible. So now we can go in and choose that instead of native pieces that we want, we can choose to create a VM storage policy based on a vendor provider. And this right. is open to anybody that does this. So once you have the Vasa provider installed, you can choose in a dropdown to use the NetApp vendor provider. Once you hit that, it unlocks all this whole list of features. Again, dedupe, compression, quality of service, uh, availability, replication, all those sorts of things that you can now build a native vCenter store, VM storage policy around. At the point of creating a VM, you tell, say, what do you want to name it? Where do you want to put it? Uh, and how big you want your disk to be? But at the end, you choose the VM storage policy that you want it to adhere to and it will show you compatible versus incompatible storage that you have backing your vCenter that that VM can now go into. So sure. think about this from a VM admin perspective, not someone who's super v, um, storage savvy. Now all they have to do is create VMs again, and they just pick which bucket they want it to go to. Right. Now here's, here's a deliberately stupid question, because I'm not okay. actually stupid, but I like to <laughs> pretend I am. Uh, I usually call it a devil's advocate question or a, here's a really stupid question, but I actually do know the answer. Actually, I don't, but nobody needs to know that. Where, where does that leave something like the virtual storage console? Because the VSC I used to use, I used to give it the credentials of one of my uh, NetApp uh, FSAs and say, go off and create an NFS and mount it to my host. Go off and create uh, a fiber channel learnerized because I was supported across all those different protocols. Does that mean in the long term that kind of provisioning process will become less desirable or are you, are you guys expecting both of those to be still equally important for the longer term? They're going to be equally important for the short term. Without getting myself in trouble, I, won't, I don't know if I'll say the long term. Right, okay. I'll leave, I'll leave you with that. Right. And, here, and here's the way it works. <laughs> VSC itself is what is yeah <laughs> getting all excited yeah come down, come down. VSC itself uh, is what's in charge of doing the discovery of all of your storage objects and nodes and clusters and pairs and all that stuff that goes on in the back end right. that's that's not Vasa doing that Vasa takes the list of discovered storage from VSC and further discovers what capabilities it can now advertise to vCenter based on that discovered list. So VSC is still going to be there as the fundamental 
kind of flagship plugin for for vCenter, and it's still going to do all of the things that it's always done for traditional vCenter storage management. But getting into vVols is where you absolutely have to get into Vasa, and because it, everything is driven by policy, mm -hmm. um, and you have to use Vasa to create what we call storage capability profiles. It's akin to the VM storage policies on the VMware side, and they really work hand in hand. And, and you kind of need both, to be honest, right, uh, to to really work them out. So we're 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 continuing to extend Vasa. It's we're, it's in its 1.0 kind of phases right now. It's still in beta or RC, mm -hmm. um, with uh, aligned with the vSphere, the next version of vSphere RC. Um, we're looking at sometime early next year uh, to to really get that out into the wild. But it's completely open. Anybody can go play with it right now. But no, to answer your question, VSC isn't going anywhere. I guess another way of looking at it is vVols is relatively new. You'll have to be on a certain platform level, both on the VMware side and on the storage vendor side. And in our kind of particular field, some people might look at this as, as uh, hocus pocus, magic, uh, bleeding edge. We'll, we'll step back and not go with this for a year, 18 months or whatever a conservative response is. And for that reason, provisioning models aren't going to change overnight the next day that they get hold of this. Right. There's, People are a bit suck it and seeing them don't want to put jump into bed with a, a new method of doing something because of that natural kind of conservativeness about people's infrastructure and not wanting to change things too too rapidly. So I, I think often I'm guilty, and it was true before I even joined VMware, of wanting things to move much quicker for new methods and new ways of being adopted to happen faster. As I get older, I kind of just have to sort of accept that I might want it happening tomorrow, but that necessarily isn't what the customer wants. Um, right. You know, they want to de-risk themselves from making decisions that, you know, too early, too quick, more sooner than they can take. Sure. Anyway. For every one of you that wants the uh, wants the latest and greatest now, living on the the breaking edge, the cutting edge. There's ten of ten of ten more that just if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. And, and I respect that. I really do. As, as an enterprise IT department, if everything is working as planned, unless there's some new feature that is going to be groundbreaking and all of these things that are introduced, then th what's the point? Mm -hmm. right? It, and I, we understand that. So there is support for um, both 7-mode and clustered on tap. A lot of the things that we do, we do as much as we can, if not complete parity between all of our auxiliary software. That, uh, that supports both 7-mode and cluster mode. Uh, to your point about vVols, I agree. I think it'll, VMware has traditionally seen a faster-paced uptick of releases than mm. uh, what, is tr what is typical in the industry, which I don't really have an answer for. Is, is it just because it's easier to do? Uh, I don't know. I, d I don't really know where this, the inherent trust comes from. Well, here's, here's, a, here's a kind of... Well, I know where the inherent trust comes from. Joking. <laughs> um, here's a kind of little segue. I used to, I used to, used to set people back in ESX two, ESX three days. People used to upgrade their infrastructures within a week or two of the stuff coming out. But uh, the reason I think it's changed is uh, there's been some things that haven't worked out for us recently. SSO is probably a case in point. So everybody has their uh, missteps. And that can sometimes make people feel a bit cautious. But also, I think the big thing is, back then, people weren't running tier one mission critical stuff on it. And therefore, the impact of it not working out as smoothly as you might have expected was less. Now that people are 60, 70, 80, God, 
some cases 100% virtualized, the risk versus reward of going through upgrades where there may not be an immediate fantastic benefit is perhaps less so and people are naturally more, well, as you just said, if it ain't broke, let's not necessarily burn the candle at both ends. The joke I used to make about this in classes was, and I don't know if this will translate across the pond, but I used to say, don't take a pee in a wetsuit because (laughs) you'll have a warm and happy feeling, uh, but nobody else will notice or feel any benefit. So if there isn't a benefit that helps the business or helps the customer or helps the end user, then you're only doing it because it makes you feel feel good. And, you know, if it then blows up in your face, all those other people are going, why did you change this? So, you know, that's that's you've got to always ask yourself, that, that little configuration change, what's it really bombing? I was a thing. customer... I was a customer before I joined NetApp, and I found myself in the boardroom a couple of times explaining why certain things happened. Um, there were issues with when we were first getting, we were early adopters of 10 gig Ethernet. Right. So, and the, the Nexus stuff from, uh, from Cisco when it was first coming out around the vSphere 4 kind of days. Big, in a, a total NFS shop. I'm a huge NFS fanboy, but uh, when we hit some of those early bugs that people weren't expecting, the vendors weren't expecting, your entire data center just just goes italics and everything's offline and you're like I don't know what happened. <laughs> so then you have to go explain why the Oracle database went offline because yeah, the story. Maya Culper is in, involved. Yeah. Right. So I was looking at moving. Uh, this is meant. This is meant to be the part where I do a very smooth, interesting, slick segue into the topic. Gotcha. But as I'm incapable of doing that, it's just going to be really like bold change of topic. Um, I was looking through uh, Nick's um, blog output. He's so prolific. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we get busy. That's the thing. You know, uh, right. when, when, you're, when you're with a, a vendor, sometimes, uh, you know, your old blog outputs, it's not top of the list and uh, things come in at the top and pushes the, the old blogging down. But you, you always sat there in the back of the mind, I really want to write about this thing. But I was looking at a blog post. Blog post? Blog post. That's what I do, blog blog post about uh, software-defined storage. And it was more a kind of discussion point about the use and abuse and misuse of that term by various people in the industry or just the community generally. So I think often these terms can become a bit of a parlour again. Cloud was one of them. You know, As soon as you mm-hmm. said, do you, do you believe in cloud, the first thing somebody would say, well... It depends what you mean by cloud. Now let's have a five-hour discussion <laughs> where we define our terms with everybody going, no, 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 the right. cloud isn't that, it's something else. So what's your take on what SDS means? Is it just a marketing buzzword? Has it become a marketing buzzword? Have we always been software-defined, but somehow people have got a hold of this term? What's your take? There's always been hardware involved, and I think that's where the disconnect is. And because there's always hardware involved, or a license involved, people think that there's got to be something that I can sell. And I, I think that when I, when I wrote that post earlier, it's been 18 months now, I think, uh, April of last year, uh, the, um, the title of it was, okay, sure, we'll call it Software Defined. Um, but it's, it's fundamental concepts that they were trying to build up around this concept of Software Defined Storage that, things, that NetApp was do, has been doing for a long time. Mm. Uh, and that's why the, the, the snarky title like that with the, <laughs> the girl shrugging her shoulders like that. Okay, Whatever. <laughs> you want to call it software-defined storage? Whatever. We call it data on tap uh, at the end of the day. Uh, no, so the, the, the idea of 
abstracting abstracting physical objects or co physical components into a software construct. I, I think is software defined X. That to me is 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 one part of it. The second part of it is it's not a product that you can sell so much as it is a mantra or a way of life. Uh, it's a it's a way that you're going to handle business from now on. It harkens back a little bit to the IT as a service thing we talked about a few years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the ability of um, allowing your users to come in and ask for only what they want when they want it. Uh, but software-defined storage specifically, I, I think, plays into, again, abstracting physical entities into software constructs, uh, such as what we're doing with natively with Clustered ONTAP. Um, it, we're using storage VMs, storage virtual machines, as the replacement kind of for a what the user is going to connect to instead of a direct physical storage controller. So all user front-end connectivity comes in through this abstracted entity, right? Uh, yeah. That to me is kind of the ability to uh, abstract that stuff is what makes it software defined. What that brings to the table for us and for customers specifically is the ability to move things around non-disruptively, the ability to share resources, make a more generic pool of resources that can be consumed underneath. So it, is it one thing? I, I don't think so. I think it's an umbrella phrase for a, a different way of running your data center. And it's it's something that Everybody in the department has to understand. Every application does not get its own block of storage anymore in the sense of fiber channel attached kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Everything is shared pools of resources. And the minute you make the switch to that kind of mantra, it's, I think that's when you as a, as a company, as a customer, become software defined. Well, not only for virtualization, but across the board. I mean, I kind of take your point because we had uh, Chuck Hollis on uh, who formerly of EMC, now, now at VMware, I think that's right. And um, he was talking about software-defined storage and vSAN. <clears throat> and being the kind of con contentious person who likes to get himself in trouble with people who are more senior than himself, I asked the, the devil's advocate question, which was, I've been chatting to people like NetApp and EMC and, and others who have been telling me ever since I you know, came along and said, I need storage for my VMs. What's 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 fiber channel? How does that work? Because I honestly didn't know anything about storage prior to getting into VMware. It just wasn't something that I even considered. But as soon as you get involved in VMware, it suddenly became a desperately important thing, as we all know. And I was in the same boat. All, all those vendors said to me, "Well, we're not really a hardware company. We're not really a hardware company. We're really a software company. And what our software can do with the the hardware it, it comes with." But here's the kind of me kind of putting the kind of devil's advocate on this. In order to get that software, that sweet experience, it came with a particular metal box. You couldn't get the software separate from the metal box. And that's probably why I think the term software-defined storage has taken root because previously all software was software-defined, but you needed access to that particular vendor's controller, and they came in a a 100 and a 2,000 and a 3,000 and a 4,000 and you could have extra shells of them. That's the distinction I kind of see. Um, so that, you know, I think sometimes people want the software without the requirement for it to come on a particular piece of metal. And there have been storage vendors who have tried this prior to the software-defined storage play. You know, I think maybe, thinking about Datacore and some of the others who've had some sort of software front end and what the back end 
metal was could be anything and what they yeah. were selling was their kind of front end but we didn't call that software defined storage they called it yeah. something else it's it's vsas right it's virtual appliances it's uh the netapp data on tap edge that we we had uh it's hp the left hand vsa uh, all there's all kinds of different versions and instant instantiations of uh, VSAs in that sense, where you're replacing a physical component with a software uh, component to run on white box or whatever you you know bring your own server type of uh, analysis. My my joke has been I've been doing software defined storage since 2007 or eight. I always try and I always try and claim to be ahead of the curve, but usually after everybody's had the big idea, I then go back into the past to work out that I was doing something that was similar to it, and then say I was ahead of. I was I was the head before time, but I had I had this really uh, crappy and there's another word of describing it a Sun uh, storage array which originally was a JBOD with fiber channel connectivity. It didn't even have RAID levels, which is a scary thing to consider. There was no protection wow. for display. Wow. But I, I wanted to do SRM and I wanted to do replication, but I wasn't going to be able to do it with one of these arrays. So I had two VSAs running on this with virtual disks partitioning the storage and those disks were all in extents, VMFS extents. Yeah. Nice. Ew. <laughs> With no redundancy. Ew. No redundancy whatsoever. And um, all the intelligence was in the VSAs. It wasn't in the metal. There was no intelligence in the metal at all except the protocol. So, I, But that was more kind of the mother of the, what was it, the, about the mother of invention being the necessity of all virtue? Or the virtue of all necessity being the mother of invention. Or whatever it is, I forget the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> it's something to do with virtue and mothers and, and necessity. You mash it up in different ways. Everybody just nods because they don't know what the real quote is. But I guess that's different from being forced to do that through limitations in the software as opposed to choosing it because you believe that's the, the best model. I think the interesting thing about VSAs, which I love for the reasons that I've just given... And you know how much I went on at NetApp. We want we want an emulator. We want a VSA, and we did finally get it a couple of years ago. Was uh, being able to access that level of storage without having necessarily the budget to actually acquire. Now I know I was very lucky, and I had loaners and demo and NFR kit from a lot of the vendors, which was great. But it cost me a packet to run that in a in a co-location facility, and being able to do it through a VSA is great. I think the trouble is that VSAs have got this kind of really bad reputation for being expensive and offering poor performance. I, I wonder who gave it that reputation <laughs> uh, without mentioning any names. So, uh, yeah. I'm looking uh, directly into the camera. <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> less said about that, the better. But it does, VSAs do have that kind of bit of an iffy reputation. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what the cause of that is. Maybe it is like the cost per gig just never worked out for some VSA models or the performance I, I, issues. I think, I think us in the vendor community uh, did not do a good enough job to set expectations. I thought people, I, I think people thought that they were going to buy a, a license for a piece of software for X amount of dollars and it was going to give them the exact same thing that they were used to getting on a typical physical platform. Mm. And, and I don't think we did a good enough job of saying, uh, no, no, uh, that's not really what it's for. Uh, but you, you know, I, I think we did that to an extent. But people were interested in it. It was hot in the industry, and we can okay. At the time, they were just let to go and fail on their own, or run <laughs> into those things you were just describing. So, multiple 
and we're all at fault. We're all in the vendor community at this point, and it's it's we should we could have done that better. We've learned some lessons ourselves. We went from our uh, data on tap edge product a few years ago uh, to a uh, couple weeks ago announcing cloud on tap at uh, for Amazon for AWS right. uh, at um, at our NetApp Insight event, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. That but, could be a segue. Yes. <laughs> But to stick on the VSA side of the house a little bit, Cloud on Tap is what we just described. It is a virtual. It is um, a virtual version of date clustered data on tap that runs in an Amazon AMI uh, a machine instance in, right. in the cloud. Why do we do that? Um, think about everything that you can do with EBS. Think about everything that you could do potentially with. Uh, I don't, I'm going to drop it here first. Actually, we did it last week on the show, but I'll say cloud tiering. There you go. There's a new one for you. Oh, right? you heard it so here. No, you heard it here second, not first. <laughs> yeah. uh, so think about the different levels of storage that you have. You have GP2 that runs EBS stuff in Amazon. You've got S3, um, simple storage, and then you've got Glacier. Even all of those are three different tiers of performance storage mm. in, uh, in just in Amazon. And everybody else has got their own flavors as well. Mm. But imagine if we could stick a virtual instance of uh, data on tap in front of those service offerings and allow you to manage data there. Or cross-connect with an Amazon uh, data center to one of where your, your colos that are right next to it. Now you can manage or share data directly with a physical controller that's your controller, your data. We call it NetApp private storage uh, for Amazon. Uh, we're working on it for the other hyperscalers as well. But what we're doing, Mike, is building this. Uh, our, our, our VP of, of ProtOps recently called it the data fabric. We are building, we're standardizing on a data platform because we think that that is the most important part of any data center is the data. Right. You can you can use any hypervisor you want. You can use any uh, application platform you want. You can do any of these kinds of things, any hyperscaler you want. But the data, the data has to be yours. It has to be managed by you. So we're building this fabric. So now we're doing it in the private enterprise, in the private data center. We're doing it in uh, colo facilities that are actually using compute resources in the cloud, but the data is staying on box. And now we have Cloud on Tap, an AMI virtual instance, a VSA for lack of a better word, inside of the public cloud, accessing both that your storage and the stuff that could potentially be in the cloud as well. So it's this blanket fabric standardized on one data platform. That's really what we're going for. Interesting. So a moment ago, you did mention uh, NetApp Insight. And we have got another topic, which is plugging and promoting uh, engineers unplugged. Um, and I guess in yeah, a way, yeah, Amy. We, yeah, Amy Lewis, go for it, girl. Um, I think maybe we can kind of segue these two things together because they're both about events and what goes on in events. So that's my little segue. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll start this up by saying <laughs> yes. Uh, two weeks ago, we had it was a really, really big milestone for NetApp, and I'll, I'll explain why in a, in a few minutes and in, in a couple minutes here. Um, but going back, you know, there's a lot of people that have been saying that NetApp has been uh, absent. And, and fair, we haven't been, we haven't been the best about going to VMUGs. We haven't been the best about um, uh, taking care of the community, the care and feeding of uh, the, the the boots on the ground, the guys and the girls in the trenches uh, of the community, and you know steered a little bit towards the execs. Well, that's kind of changing. 
And, and I'm hoping that uh, a lot of the stuff that I'm working on is, is going to change that. We've got more people blogging than we ever have before. Mm-hmm. We've recently overhauled our communities from the older kind of Jive platform up to um, uh, Lithium, which is a fairly new platform. They, they acquired Clout recently. They, they get social is, is the big thing to take away from, from Lithium. So that's an evolving process. Stage one is complete, but there's going to be several stages to continue to build the communities around the, the end users and these, these people that, that want to do that. It's not just going to be a NetApp um, uh, place where you can, an arm of support, so to speak. Uh, we really want the community to come take hold of that. Um, the podcast as well. The podcast is really taking off. A lot of people don't know that we have a NetApp podcast, and that's one of the things I'm trying to well, change. Well, hopefully I can help promote that. Uh, well, even internally. It's, in the it's show the notes problem. here. And, you know, you need somebody who's very well known in the virtualization community right. on that podcast to really drive traffic. I don't know who you would who you'd pick to have on that show, but, you know, I'm not mentioning any... I hear, there, I hear there used to be this awesome independent guy that used to work out of the UK, and he, he sold out and went to a vendor recently. He sold out to the man. He took the man's bit. So here's a contentious question, and I'll be honest about it as well. Okay. You know that uh, not being connected to the community as much as perhaps it NetApp was in the past, what do you feel was the cause of that without incriminating yourself? How to silence somebody. <laughs> Do you need a lemon? Mm. Well, can I say... I, I, I'll say something so that I, might I, help you I think you that say. people have this impression of social media. Mm. I, I think they think it's uh, bacon and unicorns, and it's not important to, to, to enterprise. Right, exactly. It's, <laughs> you wait, mean it's not? <laughs> Bacon's and no, unicorn? So I, I, it's Kim Kardashian. Nobody cares what Kim Kardashian ate for breakfast, and that's what everybody thinks Twitter and Instagram is, right? right yeah. Uh, it, it's not just that. It's it's building relationships with uh, industry peers, people that are like you. Uh, the the IT industry has a very kind of introverted nature to it, and there are a select few of us that more fall into the extrovert side of the house, or are more willing and outgoing to go out and do these things and shepherd these people into these communities. Mm-hmm. And and I, I feel like I fall into that camp. So I, I take it as a personal responsibility to continue on both my teammates, co- the company itself, and uh, you know within the community to continue to shepherd these conversations um, and and make NetApp be, I don't want to say more relevant because we're re- extremely relevant in the industry, but maybe not as much in the community. Hmm. And, and I, these are the kinds of things that we're changing. Now, granted, we're a giant 15,000-employee company. That doesn't happen overnight, right? There's some inertia there. So the processes have to be evaluated. All these things have to go into play. But progress. We've been podcasting for two years. It's becoming more and more known. Uh, more people are listening to it every day. We've got the communities. Like I said, more people are blogging than ever before. So it's, it's coming around. And without saying too much that I can't say, I think you're going to see a lot more of me out there next year. Uh, but watch that space. Okay. I mean, what I was going to say is, Despite the fact VMware's got this great community, despite the fact in the way VMware came about at the same time that blogging was taking off and Twitter came up, and yeah. it's sort of like being born in the white heat of social media, I have met people internally who don't get it. Um, it's not like all the 15,000 employees that you have in a business get community. So, I mean, occasionally I've met people who've taken the attitude of, why would I go to a VMUG and speak? Because it's full of geeks who look at their shoes, who are just are fanboys of our technology. 
And I look at those people and they say that to me and go, you've obviously never been to one of these events because they're not geeks. Well, they are, but they're some of the most articulate people I've ever met. And they like the technology, but they're certainly not kind of fanboys in the sense that they don't question everything we do and tear it apart and say, that's not as it should be and that could be better. In fact, mm-hmm. if you're looking for insights about whether your technology is meeting customer needs, it's one of the best audiences to go to. And then from a marketing perspective, occasionally I've met people who think the real decisions are made by people who have C in their job title, CEO, you know, CFO, CIO, CTO. And therefore you need to jump over those, those people because they sort of regard people who are down in the weeds as roadblocks who want to stop change and that you need to go over the top of these people to the, the top of the pyramid, sell whatever it is that you're trying to sell to them and it will cascade down, which I think is a bit, I mean, not obviously it's a top-down approach as opposed to bottom-up. I think there might be some merits in that because fundamentally if it's a big purchase, that isn't done by somebody who racks and stacks. That's done somebody who's got responsibles further up the chain but the same token, I think both, I mean, whenever I've been to speak to customers, the senior manager's been there, but he doesn't go in without his technical team who knows how all the bits work. And when he says something or asks a question, he looks to his team to see what their response is. And if their team is going, then he knows that he's not being told a load of hogwash. And if the team are going, he knows that he's being given a marketing spin. So to me, the two parts of that relationship are important in terms of an yes. audience. If you address one but not the other, then you're kind of you're missing your focus. But I'll be honest, there are people I've met internally who either take the community for granted or just don't get it. And I guess it's our, if, if we're sort of counterparts in different organisations, to explain why this thing is important. It's not the only thing we should do. It's not the be all and end all, but it's it's got a significance which I think sometimes is under either underrepresented or not completely understood by people whose yeah. job is something else. And you know, it, it's not that concern, therefore it's a, a mystery to them. So I can be honest in that way that I've met people who get it and, and don't get it. And yeah. but I guess that's true of a lot of organizations. Well, I mean, you vendorized it perfectly. Uh, the, the, the sum up is, is that we call them technical decision makers, right? Uh, so the people that would typically be at a VMUG, uh, the people that would do racking and stacking, whether they're PS guys or running their own data center, et cetera, it, absolutely, that is one bucket. The other bucket is the executive sponsorship in a sense of making sure that there's care and feeding and that there's a comfort feeling so that when that million-dollar PO slides across their desk, they feel comfortable and okay to just put their signature on it. But if you do not take care of the technical decision makers, raising my hand as well, the geeks, the guys that know how to put the stuff together and how to, the guys that are going to be running your day-to-day operations, you have to take care of those as well. You have to do both. Like you said, you can't do one or the other. Um, VMware has done a fantastic job of doing both. I think they are the model for the industry uh, at this point and have been for many years now. And there, a lot of us have been trying to figure out how we can do both with little to less money, with zero or less money than uh, budget-wise than we've had before. So it's, it's 
Yes, absolutely. A lot of people say, oh, NetApp never has parties. Well, we do, but they're usually VIP executive events. That's going to change, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, it, again, it's not only blogging and podcasting and other the kind of community-based things. There's All of the events we're going to go to, you're going to start seeing some kind of uh, uh, event specific to the, the you technical decision makers out there. So do we owe it to uh, Nick Howell that uh, NetApp Insight is now open to customers then? Is it all down to you? Do we have the... Oh, thing? no. Oh no! <laughs> there's there's a fun story, and now that we've we've had the first one, we can tell the story. So we were going to do this starting back in 2008. Really? Uh, it, it was. It, yep. Uh, what happened in 2008? Oh, this. Uh, yeah, yeah. This economy thing went. Yeah. Uh, so all the sponsors backed out. All the customers backed out. We're not going to spend the money. Cancel, cancel, cancel mm-hmm. across the board, and we just. The, the story I've been told, I wasn't an employee yet. The story I've been told is that everybody just went, okay, well, why are we going to have a show now? Because, okay, well, we'll just do it for partners and, you know, our field. Mm-hmm. It'll, we'll use it as a training exercise. Right. That's, that's kind of how Insight, we've been doing Insight for 14, 15 years. A lot of people don't know that. I mean, since around 2000, it's, it's been a, a something that we do. Traditionally, it was a, a little bit more of an internal training exercise. We also let the partners come in so that they could go to the sessions and have some one-on-one time with, with us. But, uh, Typically, that's what it was. And in a way, it was a little bit of a formality. There wasn't any fancy trade show uh, pizzazz to it. It was, it, it was just, it is what it is. It's a week worth of breakout sessions and hands-on labs. The, this year, I, I, I walked into, this was my fourth one uh, since joining NetApp, and I walked into the floor expecting, knowing what I had seen the past three years and going, okay, I know what I need to do. There's going to be this stuff. I walked in and... There's black carpet. There's signs hanging from the... Th- it was a legit trade show. And I was very, very impressed. We're big partners uh, with the NFL. The NFL was everywhere. Um, our big welcome reception was at the MGM pool on Monday night. All of our customers... If, if you take me and sit me in a, a pool deck at the MGM with 2,000 customers almost, I, I, had, I was in my element. I was just walking around... They were very smart too. They did the colored lanyards that identified uh, who was a employee, who was a vent partner, who was a customer. Mm-hmm. So I could walk around just with look at lanyards and, and introduce myself, tell them about the podcast. Yes, we're doing this for the community. We blog over here, yada yada yada. And it was an awesome, awesome, awesome event. It was one of the better ones that I've been to this year, frankly. So the other thing that we were talking about in the same kind of breath as the event was this engineer unplugged. Was yeah. was Amy Lewis from Cisco uh, at NetApp doing engineer unplugged? Cisco was the V diamond sponsor for NetApp Insight, so thank you very much, Cisco. Uh, and yeah, Amy's been doing this for a few years now, and and funny enough to me, the, the videos still don't get man, that many views. I think they're fantastic. Um, I've done three of them myself over the past two or three years, um, but she's got I think there's a thousand of them roughly now. Every, almost every event, she's got a camera crew in tow. They've got a giant whiteboard in the booth. And basically, you get up there for 10 minutes. You talk tech. You whiteboard it out. And it's deep divey kind of stuff. Not all the time, but the majority of the time, it's deep dive techy kind of stuff. So it's perfect, excuse me, perfect for the tech audience. Mm. Uh, and even gets into some social dynamics of certain things as well. So what, so was, the, called, what was the last unplugged that you did? What was the topic? Uh, the last one was some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. Policy-based management, Vasa, Vivals. I did that with Joe Onisic from Cisco, uh, talking about how that same policy-based story plays into their ACI 
uh, product as well. All right. Okay. Well, what I should do when this goes out is find your unplugs and put them in. Give poor Amy some more hits. <laughs> the girl needs them. I'm joking. It's not like I get a million. Speaking hits of away. speaking of tweeting about bacon and, and unicorns, right? Yeah, I mean, when I did, I did one with Josh Atwell. Uh, just I asked him some questions about networking because I was going to change the way I did my networking uh, significantly. So I was sort of whiteboarding out what I currently had and what I wanted and what I was going to have to do to make the change. In fact, it was very useful because a couple of weeks later I made exactly that change because. When I joined VMware, I was doing a lot of work with vCloud Director, but my network layout was nothing like what you would have for something multi-tenancy. Like a lot of home labs, it was just a flat network and no VLANing going on whatsoever, which is, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit to it, but it, you know, it's a home lab at the end of the day, you know, keep it simple, you know. Uh, So I wanted to bring in VLANs and all sorts of stuff and wanted to do things like jumbo frames and wanted to do VXLAN. So I had lots of questions for him about that. So is it... In a way, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but having somebody to discuss it with it and walk you through it, yeah. it gave me that kind of comfort blanket that I wasn't barking up the wrong tree and going to make a Absolutely. mess of it. So I actually got something out of it, as well as obviously, you know, it's an opportunity to promote oneself, but also an opportunity to have proper engineers talking to each other as opposed to marketing decks. Because these, these engineering yeah. plug things generally run in some sort of hang space, off piece, they're not like the main event, a bit like brown bags and things like that. So it's a bit more real about real people using the technologies as opposed to, you know, more stuff about synergies and, uh, you know, whatever the buzzword happens to be at the right. time. Somebody this well, the, week. The, sorry, somebody. The beauty this, of it. The beauty of it is that, again, we were talking about earlier, Cisco has their fingers in all the pies, right? It, it, so it's not just a VMware conversation. Uh, we, can, we can talk about how it, a storage and networking affects everything across the board. Glenn Sizemore got up there and talked about how SMB 3.0 is going to change the world. Uh, we had a guy talking about SAP HANA uh, on NetApp Storage. So y- she's at all of the major shows, at all of the Tier 1 shows. VMworlds, Cisco Lives, she was at NetApp Insight for the first time. Uh, I th- there's a couple other ones. I, I want to say TechEd as well, maybe. But all of the big tier one shows, uh, she's there and she's got that whiteboard. So if you see a whiteboard and a big video camera in uh, in the Cisco booth at the next show that you're at, go by and, and say hi and say thanks for the videos and definitely check them out because you nailed it, man. It's, it's technologists talking about technology without all of the marketing slideware BS and... I'm and just a whiteboard. Two engineers and a whiteboard is is what I told her she should have called it. <laughs> Actually, uh, that's a good name for it. Two engineers and a whiteboard. Well, anyway, Nick, it's been a pleasure and a privilege as ever to to hear your thoughts and hear insights into what's going on in the industry. And it's always useful to catch up with valued partners like NetApp to learn how you know. Because in my kind of world, I'm so focused on such a narrow area. I'm losing sight of all the other stuff that used to go on. In fact, I was more aware of what was going on when I didn't work at VMware. <laughs> now that I do, because you become layers of focus, and I'm sure it's a similar kind of situation for yourself. So these, uh, weirdly, what people don't realise is that this is my method of actually sort of staying connected with what's going on in the planet um, and not and trying not to get too kind of layers of focus and everything. But thanks once again for being on the show. I do really appreciate your, your time and, and uh, we'll have you on again and uh, if you ever do need a former UK independent on that <laughs> podcast you, you know where to come 
<laughs> yes, sir. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. This has been awesome. It was fun to finally do one of these. I've I've been a, a, a listener slash watcher for, for many years now, both as a customer and a vendor. So glad you're firing them back up, man. They're, they're always a good time. Thank you. All right, cheers. Thanks, everybody, for watching, and cheerio. Bye-bye, guys.